do appreciate uh, the presence of each one this morning. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings. I know we have some who are visiting with us, some who are on the road today, traveling from one place to another. We're really uh, glad that you've uh, taken the opportunity to come and visit with us and worship with us today. We get to know you a little bit, talk with you a little bit. Our prayers are with you that you'll travel safely and that you'll make it to wherever you're going in, uh, in a safe way. I know we have some of our own members that are out. They're not with us today. They're on the road as well or traveling, visiting with family or others. And our prayers are with them also. Appreciate those who have led us in our worship today. Uh, Robert Powell read for us. Gary, of course, led the singing. Robbie directed our thoughts at the Lord's table. And we appreciate all the good work that they've done. And I hope I don't detract from that today as we think about this particular passage in 1 Kings. I want to talk about an event that takes place during the reign of King Ahab. Ahab is the seventh king of Israel. Of course, he's not a good king. He's a bad king, as we'll see. He's the son of an influential king named Amri. We don't read a lot about Amri in, in the text, but we know that he became a very influential king. And four of his descendants sat on the throne in Israel, which is a little bit unusual in the history of Israel, at least this part of the history of Israel. The Israelite kings begin poorly, and they don't get much better as time goes by. Remember, the first of the northern kings, the king of, kings of Israel, uh, Jeroboam, establishes two alternate places of worship, one in Dan, one in Bethel. He put calves there, and he encouraged people to worship there instead of going to Jerusalem, which was uh, the divinely established place for worship. And so right away we have nothing short of apostasy and rebellion and digression from the divine pattern for worship and sacrifice. As, times go, as time goes by, things really don't improve very much at all, if any. It's just continual chaos in Israel, one king after another after another. Jeroboam's son Nadab was assassinated. Zimri assassinated Nadab's grandson, Basha. Zimri reigned seven days until the people made Amri king. Zimri then killed himself, and there was conflict between Amri and Tibni for the throne of Israel. Eventually, Amri prevails. And so you can see it's just continual chaos, very chaotic, confused situation in Israel as one king after another after another takes the throne. There are four descendants of Amri that rule, Ahab, Ahaziah, Je Jehoram, who is brother to Ahaziah and Ahab. None of these kings are faithful. All of them, at the very least, follow after the, son, the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. But Ahab excels them all in evil. And you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 16. And so let's go over there, 1 Kings chapter 16, and read a little bit about Ahab's rule and what Ahab does in Israel. Verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Amra, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Amra, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 
as if it weren't bad enough, up to, uh, up to Ahab, he only takes it further. He does worse. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbael, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Now, Samaria is the capital city of Israel. And so it's almost as if Ahab is establishing Baal worship (coughs) as the state religion. Verse 33, Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so there are a couple of times during that particular passage, we're told that Ahab did worse than anybody else who was before him. And you can see why he did worse. Mary Jezebel brought in her worship, established it there in Samaria, right there in the capital city. And so this is a very critical time in the history of Israel. It seems as though Israel is well on its way into apostasy, digressing away from God, falling away from God. But God, on the other hand, raises up a prophet who is equal to the task. He's ready to stand up to Ahab and call Israel back to the worship of the true God in God's way. And so look at 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so Elijah is raised up. Here's a critical moment in Israel's history. Which way is Israel going to go? Ahab would have Israel go toward Baal worship. The Lord wants Israel to remain true to him and faithful to him. And so he raises up this prophet Elijah, very strong man, very solid man. And he's able to stand up to Ahab and confront him about the evil that he's bringing into Israel. For three years, Elijah and Ahab oppose one another. And so eventually Elijah proposes a test which will settle once and for all whose God is worthy of devotion. We're going to read about that test, that contest, in 1 Kings chapter 18. So turn there, 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to spend most of our time in that particular passage this morning. A nation in spiritual decline, led by its king, down and down and down, just a downward spiral for 75 years on the one hand, a prophet holding faithfully to the Lord in his ways, standing opposed to the the tide and the current that's flowing against him, standing firm, standing strong for the cause of the Lord on the other hand. Who's going to win? Who's going to prevail? That's the question that is, is going to be asked here in this passage. Elijah issues a challenge to Ahab. He says, gather the prophets of Baal, and Asherah, and bring them to Mount Carmel. I'm going to challenge them to a duel. Now, if they prevail over me, we'll worship Baal. But if I prevail over them, well, then we all will worship the Lord. Look at chapter 18, verse 19. Now, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel. Gather together 450 prophets of Baal, 
400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So that's 850 prophets in all. 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, all together together at Mount Carmel. Let's talk about the figures who were involved in this contest a little bit. Baal, of course, was a false god, the false god of the Canaanites. Sometimes the word is translated Lord, or sometimes even in some contexts is translated husband. But he, he is the Lord that they're worshiping. Baal is the Lord of the Canaanites. He's a nature god. He's the god of the weather, the storm, the rain, and the lightning. He, like it seems all other false gods, was a fertility god. And so he's described as a god of sexual congress whose cult sported erotic acts. Perhaps that gives you some idea of the nature of this god, Baal, and those who worshipped him. He's represented as a bull very frequently. He's very popular in Israel. Many people in Israel name their children after Baal, maybe some combination of Baal and another name, which simply illustrates how common and how popular his worship was. Now, we also read about Asherah, the prophets of Asherah being gathered there. Asherah was the consort, the female consort of Baal. And so you have a male god and a female god, and they, they are uh, together, they work together. They're gathered together at Mount Carmel. If you look at a map of Israel, Mount Carmel is that mountain that kind of juts out into the Mediterranean Sea, kind of up toward the northwest section of Israel. There may have been a Canaanite or a Baal, a shrine to Baal there. And perhaps that's the reason they gathered together there on Mount Carmel. And so here's Elijah, the prophet of God, saying, bring everybody, bring all these prophets of Baal and Asherah together. And they can call on their God, and if their God prevails, well, then we'll worship Him. But, but if the Lord prevails in this contest, well, we, we'll worship Him. And then the proposal is carried out. Let's begin reading in verse 20 and read down through verse 24. Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people didn't answer a word. Now notice the word answer. As we read through this particular passage, it's a, it's a prominent feature. The people are silent. They don't answer. Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, let them give us two oxen. Let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up, place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I'll prepare the other ox lay it on the wood, and I'll not put fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people said, that's, that's a good idea. And so you get the picture. You bail prophets, you take a bull or an ox, and you cut it up, and you sacrifice it to your God. Don't put any fire there. Let Him send fire down from heaven. After all, He is the God of the storm, right? And so let Him send fire down from heaven and consume it. And then I'll do the same thing. I'll build an altar to the Lord, and I'll cut up an ox, and I'll put it on the altar, and I'll, I'll call on the Lord. And the one who answers, the God who consumes the sacrifice, will know that He is God and will, and will worship Him. And, and so they do that. They begin to carry out the instructions. And so let's begin reading there in verse 25. 
So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves, prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, put no fire under it. And so he says, look, you, you, you can go first in this contest. And so they took the ox which was given to them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. They leaped about the altar which they had made. It came about at noon, Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, he's a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside, maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be wakened, and so cry out louder. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. They've been going at it all day. <laughs> From morning to noon to the evening, they end up leaping about and cutting themselves and raving, calling on the name of the Lord. Elijah's over there taunting them. Hey, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe, and maybe that's why he's not answering. <laughs> And they cry out all the more to, to no avail whatsoever. And then it's Elijah's turn, verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he prepared, repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be, shall be, your, uh, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. He arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a th third time. And water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And, and so Elijah's got a point to prove, doesn't he? He's going to make sure the point is made. Builds the altar, puts a sacrifice on it, tells him to dig a trench around the altar. He pours water on it one time, two times, three times, enough to fill the whole trench with water. And then he starts raving, right? He starts jumping about. He starts cutting himself. Sorry. No, that's not what he does. Very calmly, very quietly, verse 36 says, At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, that I'm your servant. Now I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. Remember, Baal didn't answer. So Elijah very calmly appeals to the Lord, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you've turned their heart back again. And so Elijah very calmly appeals to God to answer. And then verse 38. Then fire from the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and looked up the water that was in the trench. I, I can only envision that scene in my mind and in my, my, with my mind's eye and ears. 
He makes this very quiet appeal, answer me, O Lord, and then boom, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, the water. God had a point to prove as well, didn't he? And he wanted to make sure everybody got the point. And they did. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slew them there. And so the response of the people in verses 39 and 40, The Lord, He is God. Elijah prevails. The Lord is God and Elijah is His prophet. The evidence that God is the Lord is so overwhelming that people can't help but confess, The Lord, He is God. And then act upon it. Seize the prophets of Baal. Take them down to the, to the brook of Kishon and, and, and slay them there, which, which they did. Now, we went through all of that in, in some detail, but I really want to focus on the question that's asked in the middle of this episode. It's back, in, it's back in verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? Or some versions may say, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? The NIV says, How long will you waver between two opinions? And so Israel is trying to serve Baal and serve God, and they're serving God, and then, and then sometimes they're serving Baal, and they're, they're kind of limping from one side to another. And, and the question is clear. The point is clear, isn't it? It, it? The time has come for you to make up your mind what you're going to do. The time is here. How long are you going to keep up this business of trying to serve two masters? It's time to make up your mind what kind of people you're going to be. And so, I'm going to, we're going to have this contest, and if God proves Himself to be the Lord, we'll serve Him. If Baal can prove Himself to be the Lord, we're, we're going, to prove it, going to serve Him. But the time has come to take a stand. Can't worship both. We've got to choose one or the other. And they do choose. At the end, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They take the prophets of Baal and slay them. Well, perhaps you run ahead of me a little bit, and you know the point of the lesson this morning. The time comes for us, each of us sitting here. The time comes when each person must decide what kind of person he or she will be. The time, and perhaps the time has come for some of us now. You see, some people try to live their lives partially in the kingdom of God, but also partially in the world, as Israel did. They wanted partially to be like the nations around them and worship and serve Baal, but they also, you know, wanted some allegiance to the Lord as well, and so they're sort of limping between, hesitating between two sides. And I says, can't do that. It's one or the other. It's time to decide. And so some people try to live in the world a little bit and live in the kingdom of God a little bit. They, they live between the two. They're kind of a mixture of worldliness and holiness. A lot of times, depending on the company they're with. And if I'm with this group of guys or this group of girls and they act like this, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. 
If I'm with uh, church people over here and they act like I can do that, I'm kind of a spiritual chameleon, you know, kind of can change my stripes, change my color depending on who I'm with. And so we're kind of limping along, hesitating along between two sides. Sometimes people behave in a godly way. They do religious things, at least at times, to attend church, at least occasionally. And they avoid the big sins. You know, I'm not guilty of any of those big sins. I'm not too profane, at least not so that people from church and family can see. I'll even discuss doctrine with people at times when it comes up. I'm generally a good person. And so, you know, I'm a good kind of person. I live in a godly way. But at other times, people walk according to the world. Their attendance is sporadic. And if it's inconvenient, just kind of make an excuse not to go. They blend in with their company. They don't really actively try to avoid situations and people that lead to inappropriate behavior. They don't really take a stand. And so I like being with these people. I kind of like doing what they do. And so if I'm with them, I kind of go with the flow. And if I'm not, well then, well then I won't. But I'm not actively going to resist their company and resist their behavior, even though I know it's really not appropriate. Elijah told Israel, it just will not do to be half in and half out. It will not do to be half in and half out. The time had come for them to decide whether they worship and serve the Lord wholly and completely or not. That time has come for us. Can't be half in and half out. Will we worship and serve the Lord wholly or not? You see, the Lord requires complete devotion. The episode clearly indicates that God will not tolerate divided loyalties. If Baal is God, be all in on Baal. If the Lord is God, all in on the Lord. But I'm not going to tolerate divided loyalties. In other places, God is described as a jealous God. You might remember it, the introduction leading up to the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. God identifies Himself as a jealous God in verse 5. You shall not worship other gods or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who, who, uh, who hate me. And so God is not going to tolerate our being devoted to other gods. He's a jealous God. He wants us holy for Himself. And He's going to do everything He can to, pro to protect what is His. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He will not tolerate His people dividing their love and loyalty between Him and another. Israel tried to do that. They tried to divide their loyalty between God and other gods, and the Lord just would not tolerate that. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall serve and worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For there's your Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. I require complete devotion. I require a whole and total commitment. I am not going to tolerate you being divided between me 
and someone or something else. That's not really divided loyalty at all, is it? Not, not really, is it? We can't divide loyalty between God and other things. That's not, it's not divided loyalty. It's complete abandonment of devotion to God is actually what that is. Christ demands complete commitment, complete faithfulness. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, Jesus says, If you're not with me, you are against me. I demand complete devotion. Look at Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, there are uh, three, three times Jesus says, Unless these conditions prevail in your life, you cannot be my disciple. Beginning in verse 25, the large crowds were going with him. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say it's going to be hard for them to be my disciple, or in all likelihood they're not going to follow me very, very, uh, very enthusiastically. If you don't hate your father, mother, sister, brother, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In verse 33, none of, uh, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Tell the rich young ruler, sell everything and follow me. Sell all your possessions, give them away, and follow me. You've got to be wholly committed to me. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, Jesus says, Whoever puts his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Put your hand to the plow and you begin to serve me and look back to the world. Not going not to have it. When, once you put your hand to the plow, there's no looking back. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, Jesus says, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. All of it. Doesn't leave much room for anything else, does it? And those who are, are entirely com committed are commended. In Matthew chapter 19, after the conversation Jesus has with the rich young ruler, Peter looks at Jesus and says, we, we've left everything and followed you. That's verse uh, 27. Uh, we've left everything and followed you. What, what's going to be for us? And Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you also will sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Those who are completely committed, they are commended. Well, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 18, take one more look at the episode there. Uh, you've got Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and, and the, the prophets of Baal, you know, they're challenged. Elijah challenges them. How long are you going to hesitate between these two opinions? If Baal is God, serve him. Is the Lord, if the Lord is God, serve him. They rave until evening and nothing happens, no answer from Baal. Elijah, very quiet and calm, appeal to the Lord. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. And they, they decide that the Lord is God. You see, the Lord gives evidence that He's God, doesn't He? On Mount Carmel, God sent fire from heaven to consume Elijah's sacrifice. And everybody that saw it was convinced that 
He was God indeed. The evidence was clear and convincing. You know, we really shouldn't be surprised at that, should we? In Acts 14, verse 17, Paul says, The Lord doesn't leave Himself without witness. The Lord doesn't expect us to be wholly devoted to Him without showing us that He is, in fact, God. Is there evidence for us to see that God exists or that Jesus is His Son? Well, the mighty works of God are evidence to those who are willing to accept it. The 71st Psalm, verse 19 says, You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? The 86th Psalm in verse 8, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And Jesus said, The very works that I do testify about me. Is there evidence that we should devote ourselves wholly to God? We'll consider these things. In this case, God sent fire from heaven to consume Elijah's sacrifice. In Exodus chapter 14, God parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites walked through on dry ground. In Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, God supplies Israel water from a rock. In Joshua 6, He makes the walls of Jericho fell. On many occasions, God defeated the enemy with an inadequate force. The 300 men with Gideon defeat the Midianites. 185,000 Assyrians fall in one night. But perhaps the greatest evidence that the Lord is God is what we see in heaven and earth, the existence of heaven and earth, and everything in them, including us. The psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. All we have to do is look up into the heaven and look at the world around us and look inside ourselves and we can see the Lord, the Lord, He is God. The 139th Psalm in verse 14, David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Who can seriously look at the human body and not, and not, be convinced that the Lord, He is God. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, when, Peter, when Paul is preaching to them on, on the Areopagus, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Just look at the world around us. If people don't believe that God exists, it's not because there's a lack of evidence. Something else is going on there because it's not lack of evidence. Is there evidence that Jesus is Lord? Well, consider these things. Born of a virgin, made the lame walk and the blind see, healed the sick, three occasions in the Gospels, even raised the dead. At His word, the storm is calmed. Demons come out of men. But the ultimate evidence is His resurrection from the dead. He's declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. And for those who will consider the evidence, we suggest there is as much solid evidence, as much strong evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as for any event in ancient history. Jesus is raised from the dead. He is Lord in Christ. That's the conclusion that Peter reached on the day of Pentecost when he showed that, Peter, that Jesus was raised from the dead. He proved it by Scripture, quoting the 16th Psalm. He proved it by his, own, by his own experience. We are all witnesses of His resurrection, Peter says. He is Lord and Christ. And the crowd is convinced, and they 
respond. You see, they had been limping between two sides. It's not unreasonable to think that some in the crowd on that day were, on the crowd, were in the crowd who were yelling out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And now they're cut to the heart. They consider the evidence. They're cut to the heart. And they make a decision for the Lord. The critical moment has come. Paul reached that critical moment on the road to Damascus and in the days following. We're told that he had been kicking against the goads, but the time had come for him to make a decision. Is he going to serve Christ or not? Well, he decides to serve Christ. He gives his life to Christ. He gives up everything that he had that was an advantage to him to serve Christ. And at the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 says, I know, I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. I made a commitment that day on that road to Damascus in the days following, and I've never wavered from it, and I know whom I have believed. The time for Saul to make a decision came, and he decided to serve the Lord. The time has come for you. How long are you going to go on limping between two sides? If the Lord is God, if Jesus Christ is His Son, choose Him. Choose Him completely. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship You today. We pray, Father, that the things we've done this morning have been pleasing to You. That's our aim, that's our, our desire in doing these things, to praise and to glorify You. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to look into Your Word, to, uh, to, to read it and to study it, that it inspires us, that it, it motivates us, compels us to make decisions in life. Father, we pray that when that moment of crisis comes for us, that we will choose the Lord. It may cost us here and now to choose the Lord, but the benefits in eternity are far beyond our imagination, far beyond our description. Our Father, we pray for those who are here today. We pray that in this moment, they will decide, each of us will decide for the Lord to serve Him, to serve Him only, to serve Him completely. We're thankful, Father, that you made it possible for us to have our sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ so that we might have fellowship with you and might live and serve you and please you. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're here and you're subject to the invitation today,